This podcast is dedicated to the dissemination of explicit language. But not today. Today we play it all nice-like with the naughty words. It's Tuesday, August 16th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. One of my favorite shows, Better Call Saul, had its last episode yesterday. Why do I love the show? Well, the acting, the plot lines, the mise-en-scene. I'm going to miss the mise-en-scene. Great mise-en-scene out of that show. But it was one of the rare shows that tries to get at how real people might really react to extraordinarily dramatic circumstances. Most of our shows, even ones rooted in realism, of course know that you need drama and conflict and people making heroic choices or even cowardly choices, but exciting extreme choices for us to want to keep watching. Better Call Saul had a bunch of that, and they had schemes, and they had plots, and the main character, played by Bob Odenkirk, exemplified the idea of, oh, maybe we'll do the most dangerous thing. That'll be interesting to us, the viewer. But there was another main character, played by Reese Seahorn, who I interpreted as essentially a proxy for what would a real person, a person not without flaws, but grounded in the way people really act, how might she react to these horrific, outrageous things that she was seeing? So there is a genre of movie that throws the regular guy into the extraordinary circumstance and they do it through adrenaline. Okay, you got the stash, you're on the run. They're trying to kill you. You have 24 hours. You need to become an assassin even though you're not trained for it and it's against your will. And most of the time, movies with this or TV shows with this plot will have an acknowledgement of the circumstance. Oh, I'm the wrong guy. Why is this happening to me? Or the classic, I'm supposed to be in Cleveland on business. Whereas in real life, it'd be Menlo Park. But in real, real life, the person wouldn't do it. Then you'd have no movie. But the person would just break down or refuse to go along with a cockamamie plot to kill a stranger or to become an international assassin. In real life, some huge percentage of the time, the trauma of extreme violence would be debilitating and people would choose not to make the most dramatic choice, but the one that makes them the safest. We almost always choose physical or psychological safety. It makes sense that we did. Why are we here? Because we evolved from creatures that made that choice in their past and our past. The entire concept of safety and saving people is constantly contradicted by movies. In superhero movies, oh, they save the village of Sokovia, the Avengers do. And all those people, well, in real life, they'd be traumatized refugees who will have to deal with the horror for the rest of their lives. In the movie, it's, thanks, Iron Man! Every survivor of a slasher flick will, would, in real life, have to live with that. And it would be a prison, a never-ending prison, and there'd be so much therapy, and many of them would become catatonic from it. It wouldn't be the, oh, we're finally safe moment. And I understand this, and movies are contrived. I mean, think about all the things that you have told yourself, oh, I know how to do this, but you don't, you just saw it in a movie. Like if I was in a situation where someone immediately took a hostage and put a gun to their head, something in me would click and say, okay, I know the playbook for this. You gotta reason with them, you gotta keep them talking. How do I 
know that. I only know that because I saw a lot of movies with Denzel Washington, John Lithgow, and a hundred other people. I know the effects of amnesia are counteracted by conking someone on the head again. I also know, this is one that I gleaned from movies, when you have a machine gun and you're trying to shoot someone who's fleeing, don't follow them as they run left to right across your line of vision with the bullets because they might always outpace you. What you're going to want to do, watch me here, I've never seen this in the movie, is go the other way. So if they're running left to right, you go right to left with your machine gun. You're pretty much sure to hit them. Yes, it's entertainment. We excuse entertainment. But there are some ideas that are based on entertainment that I do think hurt us in real life. For instance, the conspiracy explanation, very attractive in movies, very rarely true in real life. Time machines in movies always have these horrific second order effects. Well, there is a time machine. There's one time machine. It's called the Earth. It proceeds at one second per one second. And I don't know, it's pretty good, right? Most sci-fi is dystopian. Some isn't, you know, Star Trek isn't, but mostly you set a movie or a work of fiction in an alternative universe to make a point, And it's usually a cautionary point about our current universe. But in real life, you know, if you took any moment in the past and jumped ahead 50, 100, or 150 years, every once in a while you'd land inside a world war. But mostly you would just experience better health, more prosperity, greater lifespans. Here's another lesson from movies that I think we need to unlearn. It's about ignoring the Cassandra, right? In Ghostbusters, I'm telling you, Mr. Mayor, there's a series of phantasms that are attacking our city. In The Terminator, no, no, you have to believe me. He comes from the future to kill us. In Gremlins, oh no, you fed him after midnight. They're going to kill us all. But in real life, we need to almost always ignore the Cassandra. If they're, you know, have having in possession of good credentials from excellent departments of health, then maybe, and, and we've tasked them with being the early warning system for a different uh, biohazard or perhaps global warming, then listen to the Cassandra. But mostly, you know, the guy who was working the night shift and saw Mogwai snacking at 12.04 p.m., that guy could be ignored. Stories are a place to heighten our experience, to provoke thoughts. But my God, with streaming and with, uh, you know, podcasts in our ears and with just the amount of fiction that we imbibe on a daily, hourly basis, I do think that some of the stories that we keep telling ourselves are having a negative effect. So in some, it's not just crazy enough to work. It's just crazy. They called you mad in the university because you are crazy. And why does no one believe me? Because you're peddling nonsense that needs to be doubted. My solution, nonfiction podcast, not even the narrative ones. They could screw with those. Daily, fact-based podcast, possibly with an emphasis on vexillology. All right, that said, here's what I need you to do. You'll be fine. You're going to cut the red wire. No, no, not the actually, you know what? Wait, why don't you just put it under a series of blankets and walk away pretty quickly? Much more sensible. On the show today, there's a special election in Alaska, which features a special candidate who you know and a process that's especially intriguing. But first, labor unions are having their moment with companies like Amazon and Starbucks being dragged into the realm of the unionized. But more unions fail than succeed. And I wondered if this was because there sometimes are pretty good arguments against unionization, arguments that fit within the rational self-interest of workers. 
So I had on Dr. Patricia Campos Medina, the executive director of the Worker Institute at the School of Industry and Labor Relations at Cornell University. And she put forward an alternative explanation. She said it's because the system is rigged, full stop. Always? Yeah, she says always. Now, I can't disprove that, nor can I really credibly rebut it, but it was a little suspicious. So that's why we have conversations. And I hope you enjoy this one. Dr. Patricia Campos Medina up next. Unions are having their moment. One center in Staten Island that is an Amazon facility has unionized to a lot of acclaim. A couple of Starbucks locations have unionized. Of course, anti-unionization is having what's called more than a moment, decades and decades, especially in many Southern states. But I wanted to talk to an expert on unionization and a professor of the union movement to get at some niggling questions I had, like, is it ever rational for a worker to oppose a union? Joining me now is Dr. Patricia Campos Medina, the executive director of the Worker Institute, ILR Cornell University. She is a union veteran. She's done much organizing in her life. Thank you for joining us on The Gist. Uh, Thank you for having me. such a great time to have this discussion. Um, I commend you for it. First, I want to acknowledge and lay out uh, what I think are just some real obvious truths when it comes to unions. Collective bargaining, which is workers sticking together, just inherently gives them more power and better status when trying to negotiate for wages, living conditions, etc. And I would say, but you correct me if I'm wrong, that that is the core strength and the core tenet of unionization, just the power of collective bargaining. Would, would you agree with that? Um, most definitely. Uh, the power of the union is workers sticking together and collectively organizing wages, working conditions for themselves and their co-workers. So it's not the company just telling you what they're going to pay you and then telling somebody else what they're going to pay you, but it's actually having to negotiate standards together. And that's the power of unionization. And that's why workers are coming back to because they saw that they were losing ground. We have been losing ground in, in negotiating with corporations in corporate America for the last 30 years. And, uh, and we saw it during the pandemic and workers are now saying, wait, we need to uh, change the dynamics in the workplace. And unionization is the only way that they can do it. And let's also acknowledge that when unionization was set against a backdrop of industry and much of uh, the United States old industry was declining and we had the Rust Belt, the possibility of unionization was weakened. It's very hard to negotiate with a dying industry. But when you have something like Starbucks or especially Amazon, which has become the industry of the United States, there is at least an opening for unionization to say this is a very strong, robust company. We want to have our fair share of it. Exactly. I mean, Amazon has become what the largest uh, employer in the United States is not the world. It used to be Walmart. Now, you know, the people don't go to the store. They just order online. So Amazon is the biggest employer and it has the power of driving uh, income, earnings, 
wages, working standards for a whole generation of workers. And that's why it's so critical to organize it and force it to change its practices. And that's why workers are doing. They're trying to force Amazon to be actually live up to its corporate responsibility. They talk a lot about corporate responsibility, but what does that mean? It means that you invest in people by paying them a, a living wage, which varies by location. A living wage in New York City is not at the same living wage as uh, as Mississippi, but at least you have to be allow people to have um, to be able to uh, to afford their dreams for themselves and for their, their children in America today. The ability to achieve the American dream for the next generation has gotten way, way more difficult to do. And so what, what workers are trying to do now is, is rebalance that ability for a working class person to give their children a better future than they have for themselves, which is what, you know, what uh, my parents believed in America for, that in America you could build a better future for your children than what you had. And, and that you do it through hard work through a decent wage, through a good job, to access to benefits, and that uh, had disappeared. And that's what we're forcing uh, Amazon to do. I've followed a lot of the union votes at Amazon facilities, and most of the time, anti-unionization wins. In Staten Island, this one time, pro-unionization won. But actually, the biggest constituency is not voting at all. That is typical. More people sit out these elections who are eligible than actually vote. Why is that? Explain that dynamic. The cost-benefit analysis that a worker has to do when they go for an session is that what is the risk that I'm taking if I vote for the union? The 68% of American workers, and there's polls uh, on this, support unions because they believe they're good for the economy overall. However, when it comes down to you uh, having to vote for it, you have to make a, a risk-benefit analysis. If I vote for the union, will I get fired? Do, can I afford to lose my job? Can I afford uh, to, 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 uh, to risk my earnings as bad as they are uh, for my family? And that is, that could be a rational, you can call it a rational choice. But the reason why the, that risk is there is because corporate America has the upper hand in our election, in the system of labor relations. Um, Amazon gets a slap on the face if they fire workers for union support. And by the time a hearing happens in courts, it could be four or five months before that hearing happens. And in the meantime, the worker is fired with no job. So you can consider that a rational choice. Okay, I can't afford to vote for the union. I'm just going to stick it out. Hopefully my coworker, other coworkers have, can carry the day. That, that is happening because it is a real risk of losing your job if you vote for a union in the United States. That, that is, a, is a right that is protected but, but by law, by the NLRA, but um, corporations have more money and more lawyers than a union. Look at what happened with the Amazon labor union. They organized with $100,000. That's what Chris Smalls and his crew had. In the meantime, Amazon had millions and millions and millions of dollars in, in, anti, in union busting campaign. They actually had capped the audience meetings. They fired people. They actually fired Chris Bones um, uh, because he was trying to, to get protection for his workers. So that intimidation tactics works in favor of corporate America. And that's why it's so hard uh, for, um, for work for, to win elections. We win elections. 
but it is hard to get to the bargaining table. And I think that's the test for Amazon right now, whether they're going to be able to force Amazon to actually sit down and bargain a contract uh, with the union. Everything you've uh, told me would explain why someone might vote no, not in line with their rational self-interest. But why all these sitting on the sidelines and abstentions? Once a union files a petition with the NLRA for an election, the union's representatives are supposed to get access to the workforce, either through a contact list or even through, um, through being able to go to the common areas of the facility to talk to. But that doesn't happen. Most of the time you get lists with all names. You don't get access to the facility. You really have to spend a lot of time outside on the streets or even do house visits. So, that, so the, the, the power dynamics in union elections are skewed towards the employer who has all the access of the, of the, to the employees 24 seven, uh, in 24 seven. So they can talk, they can do their anti-union message, they can threaten, they can intimidate, they can fire the leaders. And in the meantime, the union has to counteract uh, outside, we limited access, we run less. So the dynamics are, total, are, are totally off skew in this situation. So that's why you see perhaps the union not be able to talk to everybody. That's why we you know, that's why unions are asking for the reform in the PRO Act. I don't know if you've seen that legislation in Congress. We actually creates a level of parity in access to the employees that are supposed to be, to be able to vote. We don't have it right now. Also, be uh, prohibits what's called um, close uh, close um, employee meetings that the the, com- the companies have to do the anti anti union messaging that they do twenty four seven. They also um, are supposed to be able to um, to have big fines when they actually do unfair labor practices like firing union leaders and to have quick quick uh, actions against that because that's an intimidation tactic. Um, so if, if we're able to take away the power of the corporation to have a cap- captive audience meetings, what they call it, to actually talk bad about the union, uh, then we, I think we will see a change. What I hear from you and other pro-union experts or to some extent just experts is they're not really elections. Like you're saying the American electoral system is flawed. The union electoral system is what? So flawed it's not really an election? The power is all in the employer. They have the, the captive audience meetings. They, they have access to the employers all the time. They can threaten and intimidate. And it takes months before there is any remedy through the court. So we need, we're trying to, we, what we want is, a, is more ability for workers to actually have free elections. That's why we want a ballot elections. There's less intimidation when you actually vote through a ballot system than when you have to vote in the facility where you have your managers and sometimes your security. Uh, right there. That's intimidation. And it happens all the time. It happened in, in, in Bessemer, I don't know if you, you saw a report by Rutgers University about the level of intimidation and cooperation that Amazon has with the police department in, in, in Bessemer. Yeah. I mean, they convinced the post office to install a mailbox inside the facility. Yeah, exactly. And then they hire the police officers to be uh, the oversight and they, you know, the police officers are people in the community. So it's this level of intimidation that is, you know, we oppose for, the general elections to have police in, in voting booths. 
But in elections, they can have their security guards right there. Uh, and paying attention to who's voting and who's voting, a, who's wearing a union shirt. Um, you know, so that level of intimidation we wanna, we wanna, um, uh, we wanna reduce. And there is actually legislation in Congress that will do that. Now, the, the PRO Act is a fix on the, on the ages of the NLRA. It's just uh, fixing it a little bit. It's not what's going to really get us to improve uh, our system of labor relations in this country. I mean, uh, what we need is actually um, what we call a sectoral bargaining process. That's what I, what are people like uh, that we who are trying to figure out how do we improve labor relations in the United States? Sectoral bargaining. So the whole um, sector, the whole warehouse sector, the whole transportation sector as one can bargain with the companies, the big corporations that run those sectors. Is that, is that what the idea is? Yeah, the sector of bargaining is modeled after um, perhaps what we have in Germany, uh, in the European Union, in which and there is a tripartite table of government, um, a business, and unions who, who come together and negotiate standards for the entire sector. And, and, and what makes it work is that it's overseen by the government and is negotiated between um, employers and unions. And the workers are the, and you create a system for, for bringing out violations that fail to meet the standards for the industry. That would be a better approach for, for warehousing. It's the big, it's the growing industry in this country. And if you have to organize Amazon facility by Amazon facility, it's going to take an amount level of resources that unions don't have to launch a campaign in every facility, in every facility and negotiate a contract facility by facility, because that's, that's how we have an enterprise level collective bargaining system in the United States. What do you think will happen first? That sectoral bargaining will be adopted or that Amazon will be a unionized company? Amazon will be a unionized company. <laughs> okay. The other one's a the, longer term. The other one, yeah. I think we're going to have to change our political discourse uh, in this country. But I think they're, they're tied. I think that as more, un as more workers demand unionization, as more workers demand corporations to give more, you know, to actually give up to corporate responsibility and invest more in the workforce, um, that we will see changes in our political discourse. Because I think that our political discourse that got so divided because there's actually economic insecurity in this country. Um, uh, income inequality has, has, is the highest it's ever been since the Great Depression. And people are economically insecure. And, and, and the likes of Donald Trump uh, use that insecurity to, you know, to, to make our political discourse um, you against me rather than like, what is it that we need to, to be doing to, uh, to secure that? So I think that you know, the demand right now, the reason why we are seeing more union activity, remember, more union activity, that's from filing elections to actually um, uh, uh, doing strikes, or worker strikes, to doing work stoppages, uh, to actually walking out of the job. Actually, people not returning to work. You know, we talk a lot about the great... The great resignation, whatever they the call it. The great resignation, yes, yes. right? That is an actual uh, action workers are taking. that said, I'm not going to go to work for, me, for, for bad wages. For I, I'm better off staying home taking care of my kids because it costs me more to go to work than to stay home. That is an actual 
act of rebellion against the conditions in the workforce right now. So in order for, for, for our economy to get workers back to work, they're going to have to do better, pay them better wages, better benefits, better health care, and make the workplace a place you don't go to get sick or die. Because that's what happened to people during the pandemic. I want to ask you about Starbucks and Amazon, though, specifically. With people like you who are hoping for more unionization and were very heartened that the first Amazon labor union was formed in Staten Island, there was a subsequent vote and the union lost 618 votes against the union, 380 votes in favor. And again, this was out of 1,600 workers, so not voting at all, uh, a major factor. Is it even more, you laid out why it's very hard to unionize given all the rules of the election, but is it even more disheartening when an Amazon union in the same borough in similar circumstances as the one success, when they reject it? is a lot riding on specifically Amazon unions to look at the example of what their one successful labor union has achieved and want to unionize more. So what the Amazon labor union did was to prove that you can actually win against Amazon and and that you can do it by having a localized message and by having workers be the leaders of the campaign. Now, that is one example that many, many people were doubtful that it could be accomplished because there were many other unions that have been trying to organize Amazon in the past. So Chris Smalls did it. It's a David and Goliath story. And, and he did it because he was, he was based in the grassroots, driving his message. He separated himself from the message of Amazon that said, oh, you don't want a third party outsider coming to tell us how to do your job. So he said, well, I am not an outsider. I used to work here. So he was able to capture that, that moment. Now, how, whether they're able to replicate that over and over again, that's where we're at right now. Because amplifying organizing to the scale that we need to win against Amazon is going to take a lot of resources just in the legal fees to be able to be filing petitions and defending elections. So it takes a lot of resources. So I am hoping, and, and I think that there's the, the, the AFL-CIO with the new, the presidency of Lee Schuler, the first woman ever to be uh, elected to lead the labor movement in the United States, made a commitment to figuring out how to support ALEU uh, so that they can amplify and expand what they were able to achieve locally. The Teamsters, who had have a big um, Im- impact on, on that industry, are also trying to figure out how to align themselves with ALU so that they can support the efforts and sort of continue the struggle moving forward. So I think that what's going to take is all the established labor unions to support LAU to survive the process of anti-unionization that uh, Amazon is launching right now. Patricia Campos Medina is the executive director of the Worker Institute at Cornell University's Industrial and Labor Relations School. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
And now the spiel. There's always an admonition against media who covers politics not to focus on the horse race. If you're focusing on the horse race, you're not doing it right. I never understood this. First of all, horse races are interesting. The reason why people focus on horse races is there's a lot of majestic animals running around a large track. From time immemorial, we haven't been able to take our eyes off of horses. And secondly, in a regular horse race, you know who wins? It's a horse. And then what happens to the horse? They get some flowers, maybe a carrot. But in the politics version of don't cover the horse race, a horse doesn't actually win, a politician does, and then that politician goes on to vote on policy, which is a very important thing. Would be interesting if Seattle Slew was the final up-down vote on the public option. Well, I've got a horse race for you, and before I get into it, I'm going to warn you, you're going to have opinions on the horse I'm talking about. You're going to feel like maybe the horse bit you at a county fair, or the horse was hyped to an extent and then didn't deliver and you had to tear up your tickets. The horse is Sarah Palin. We're talking about the special election to serve out Don Young, who died his term for Alaska in the U.S. House of Representatives. There's also another election for the primary, the Republican primary for the House of Representatives on the ballot. But I'm talking about the special election because right now in Alaska, they're using ranked choice voting and they have four candidates who could be ranked in any order by the people of Alaska. But weird things have happened. We're going to go back a step. I think you as just listeners, you're very well aware of how ranked choice voting works. But if not, you get your ballot, you rank the candidates from one to four in this case, and then they immediately do a runoff and reallocate the votes of the trailing candidates to higher up candidates. It's sort of a way to avoid actual physical runoffs, which can be costly and maybe a little bit unfair. And they say, and it's a little bit true, but not a lot of it true, that ranked choice does allow for some more dark horses to win. Sorry for the horse reference again, but you have to ask, well, why is it so important that dark horses win? Well, win fairly. In other words, there can be a dynamic where 60% of the electorate would never in any case vote for someone, maybe someone like Sarah Palin, but no one can agree on what their first choice is. So with ranked choice voting, the candidate who everyone hates or more than 50% of the people hate, can't win. It doesn't come up that often. People who've looked at ranked choice voting, looked at the actual results, looked at the numbers, say that maybe in about 10% of the cases, the candidate who wasn't in first after the first round of voting loses. In fact, in uh, New York City, where they did ranked choice voting, there were 52 primary elections. And of those 52, there were three where the person in first place after the first First round of voting didn't ultimately win. And we should also add the margins of all of these candidates. They were all in second place in their races, and they overcame a two-point deficit, a two-point deficit, and a 0.3-point deficit. But if you look back at the original vote in July for this special election, Sarah Palin got 27% of the vote. And then the candidates after her were uh, Nick Begich, who's a Republican, though he comes from Democratic cloth, famous Democratic family in the state. He was at 19, and Al Gross was at 12, and Mary Peltola was at 10.1%. So, given that, you'd think that Sarah Palin would be at first after the first round of voting is tallied, and like I told you, a very high percentage of the candidate in first ultimately win. However, strange things are afoot in the last frontier. Al Gross dropped out. 
Mary Peltola is the only Democrat left. A pollster indicates that Peltola is leading in his polls. In fact, this pollster, Ivan Moore, says that Begich has a 50% chance of winning, Peltola a 35% chance, and Palin only a 15% chance. This is very much the opposite of what the betting markets have. 61% of them are predicting, or at least 61% of the money is on Sarah Palin. How can this be? Ivan Moore has an explanation. This is from the Juno Empire. Quote, because people are stupid. Because they haven't got the data and they haven't thought through the fact that she's got two big hurdles to overcome. The two hurdles being Peltola and Begich, although I don't know why either of them don't have hurdles of the other one and Palin. So a lot is on the ballot and there's a lot riding on this particular horse. And I don't just mean the election of who will serve Alaska's at-large district in this special election. I also, of course, mean the ability of pollster Ivan Moore to show his face in the state after calling everyone who's betting on Sarah Palin, quote, stupid. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is not the shop steward of Peachfish Productions, but she does shop at Stu Leonard's. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, and thanks for listening. Time for diamonds. Then came one over to Stars. Sarah Palin's uh, dropped plenty to offer, but just needs some room. Further back then to Agatha Tyron. Passing lane and wider out. Time for diamonds. Then Sarah Palin. Agatha Tyron. Dawn. Time for diamonds. Time for diamonds. Time for diamonds. Beats Sunny Glenis. Then came Sarah Palin. Farewell, old girl. You've given them a great ride, the Sibionas. Further back then to Superfast Maggie.